Good morning, citizens. Uh, please turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 8. I can still remember when I was a kid when the Star Wars movies came out. That was like in the early 80s, maybe even late 70s. Now, we um, lived on a farm, and at that time, we never went to movies ever. Just my parents weren't into that at all. We had a little black and white TV, so we didn't even get to uh, rent the movies and see them, but I heard about them coming out. And I did have a friend who lived a few kilometers away on another farm, and man, they had a colored TV, and they had a VCR or maybe a Betamax, I can't even remember, the kind that where you put the video top, videotape in the top and you push it down. So I would go to his house, my friend's house, and we would watch the movies, and he had all the toys as well, he had all the like the ships and the little Ewoks, you could play with them. And so, I mean, I wasn't like a huge like Star Wars fan like some people are nowadays, but it was an amazing time. And it was an amazing movie that came out. And there was three of them. It was like, this is crazy. One after the other, amazing movies. Years later, and I don't know how many years later, I was probably an adult when I either clued in or first heard that there's actually more to the story than just these three movies. Come to find out, there's a trilogy of trilogies, right? If you're familiar with them, which many of us are, there's the three that were first made. They're kind of the middle three. And then there's the three earlier ones before that, which came out in the early 2000s, um, which weren't that amazing. But anyways, um, and then there's the newest ones. And I've actually only seen the first six. So I've seen like the first two of the three trilogies. All right. But it's all one story. Every movie is connected to the other. It's one great big story from beginning to end, all nine movies. The Bible, many of you know this, is also one big story. It's one story that God is telling of the history of the world and how he's made things to be. And in the New Testament, we get a fuller understanding of what the Old Testament actually means. And even now, we live in the time when we actually have all of Scripture revealed. We can understand the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. So though there's two Testaments, old and new, they work together and they really communicate one story. Here in Hebrews, the author uses the Old Testament the most out of any book in the New Testament. Okay, the Old Testament is quoted the most in the book of Hebrews. And so he is using the Old Testament to explain the New Testament. Alistair Begg, who is a um, pastor and teacher in the U.S., he's originally from Scotland, and he said that he used this little, or he was given this little kind of formula here uh, in Sunday school in Scotland to help make sense of the Bible. And it goes like this. The Old Testament we have, in the Old Testament we have Jesus predicted. In the Gospels, we have Jesus revealed. In the Acts of the Apostles, we have Jesus preached. And in the Epistles, we have Jesus explained, which is where we are here in the Epistles. So Jesus preached in the Old Testament, Jesus revealed in the Gospels, Jesus preached in the Acts of the Apostles, and Jesus explained in the Epistles. And then if we had time, Revelation is where Jesus is expected, his return is expected. And so... The Bible uses itself to explain this one big story. But along the way, and 
maybe it's even happened during our weeks here in the book of Hebrews, um, there can be moments of confusion. Because there's this is a big book. There's a lot that is going on. And Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, is one of those moments of beautiful clarity. Okay, and why do I say that? Well, let's just read these verses and see right off the bat what the author has to say. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. That's a beautiful phrase right there, isn't it? Here's the point. He's saying, I've been explaining and showing you from the Old Testament. I've been doing all kinds of things that are are difficult to understand even, that take a lot of explaining. I mean, we're eight chapters deep here into a long letter. And he's saying, here's the point. I'm going to sum it up for you, all that I've been explaining. And that is amazing for us. That's helpful for us. Because each week it feels like we've been like wrestling with the text a little bit. And this week it's really, the message is kind of like, here's what it is. Here's what he's saying. All right. So verse one again. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the author in this beautiful moment of clarity is saying, here's what we could boil it down to. Jesus is our high priest. And note he says, he's a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting, and that's significant, that word seated. That means the work that that Jesus has done is complete. It is finished. And even at the end of John's gospel, when Christ is dying on the cross, John records the last thing that he says is, it is finished. Now, compare that with the old covenant and with the sacrifices that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. That work is never ending because sin was never ending in the people of Israel. There was constantly sacrifices that were being made. Now, there were moments where they would sit down and rest, obviously. I mean, even think about it in like summertime, right? Can you imagine summer? It's going to be a glorious thing, isn't it? Summertime. You go out there and you mow your lawn. Now, not riding mower, okay? I'm talking like mowing it with a push mower. So you mow your lawn. It's all done. You sit down to have a nice cold drink and you rest. But you know, just like I know, that the moment you stopped cutting, the grass is actually growing. And that's the beauty of summer, right? Things grow. So it's growing again. And you know that in a few days or maybe in a week, you're going to have to mow the lawn again. So this kind of sitting that Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father is not the kind of sitting that we do to rest after work that is going to need to be done again. This is the kind of sitting that says the work is done. I have done everything that needed to be done to to be in the place of sinners. And now I'm resting at the right hand of the Father. Now that is a completed work. But he goes on to say where he's sitting is actually in the throne of the majesty in heaven. Okay, so try to picture this. The throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, we don't use the word majesty a lot. It doesn't probably come up in your regular vocabulary on any given day. The only place really where it probably would come up is when we think of the Queen of England, right? The Queen of England is this special um, monarchy who is 
uh, ruling, has ruled for a long time, and there's actually rules around what you can and can't do around her. Okay, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually quite a long list of things that you can and can't do. One of the things that you can't do is just call her by her name. You can't just be like, hey, Liz, how you doing? You call her by her majesty. That's how you reference her. That's how you talk to her. You also can't touch her like a regular person. Regular Joe can't touch her. Um, you're not supposed to lead the conversation. She's the one who's leading the conversation. You can't walk too fast for her, and you can't walk too slow for her. All right, so those are just a few things of what majesty kind of means here for us in the world with a extremely limited amount of people on the planet, um, her majesty the queen being one of them. This kind of majesty is different. This majesty is related to God the God of the universe. Now, you and I know God in, in very personal ways. And we're actually going to talk about that in the coming weeks of how we can actually enter in and be with God, be in his presence. But sometimes that, that personal nature of our relationship with God can diminish God and make him almost like us or just like a little bit more than us. Here, though, the author is trying to say, Jesus is in the presence of this majestic God, someone who is different, who is greater than we could ever imagine. Isaiah actually helps us understand that the, the prophet in, in writing to the nation of Israel and, and trying to get them to leave idols and to understand who God is that they worship, he says this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18. He says, to whom then will I liken God? Or what likeness will I compare him with? Like, how can I get you to understand the majesty, the, just the brilliance, the greatness of God? He goes on to say in verse 21, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its in inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This is the majesty of God. He lays out the universe like a tent. Have you ever set up a tent? Like a little pop tent? That's what God does with the universe. He lays it out and he's able to like just do it without effort. Now, I mean, we as humans are, are trying our hardest to send, like currently we're sending Rome robots to, to Mars and it takes the most intelligent people, the greatest technology that have, we've ever invented to just get a robot onto planet Earth. And, and we're working so hard, sorry, not planet Earth, onto Mars. We're working so hard to get just a little piece of metal onto Mars, which in, in relation to the universe is like our little, it's like our neighbor next door. And God says, that whole universe, I just, I open it up like it's a tent. This is the majesty of God. And it's into this majesty that Christ comes and he sits at his right hand. The work is done. He's there in his presence. And what is he doing in that presence? Well, it says, it says that he is a minister in the holy places. What is this ministry? What is this, 
What is this ministry that he's actually doing in the presence of God? Well, we've been learning about that in terms of, um, you know, his sacrifice and the payment for sin. And we'll see that actually in uh, next week's sermon in chapter 9 and into chapter 10. But look also further down in chapter 8, verse 10. It gives us a little bit more. It says this, but, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it enacts on better promises. So he's actually, he is ministering this better covenant that has been promised to us. And to help us kind of think and understand even more about that, the author then, starting in verse 8, quotes from Jeremiah 31. He says, this is what this new covenant looks like. Okay, and so he quotes Jeremiah 31, and we're just going to think about one aspect of it, and that aspect that we see in verse 10. Okay, so starting, he starts in verse 8, quotes Jeremiah, then he gets to verse 10, which is in the middle of that section, and says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What the old covenant couldn't do is change the person's heart. All it was was actions. It was things that they were needing to do. Now, now they could um, exercise faith. They could put their trust in God and in what he was doing and, and in the work of sacrifices, but it never changed their heart. And now Jeremiah here is saying, here's what's coming. Here's what Israel And obviously later in the New Testament, we see even us Gentiles, us non-Jews. Here's what you will be able to enjoy and experience in this new and better covenant. It is a heart that is changed. Where the laws of God are actually written on our hearts. They're not just things that we write down or tie to our bodies like the um, old Jewish traditions are. They are actually on our hearts. We are made new from the inside out. New Testament explains this in maybe in language that we're more familiar with. So 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. So Peter here is saying, here's what happens. God in his uh, divine work through this new covenant changes us. He actually changes our hearts from not just naturally inclined towards the world and people around us, but they're actually changed in a divine way. Not that we are made divinity, but that God comes and enters into us namely through the person of the Holy Spirit, right, who comes and enters into us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 also says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. That's what Jeremiah was talking about. The new is here. We are a new creation. We are made new from the inside out. Now, 
The challenge for us is that we do not live in the totality of what Jeremiah was even promising. So Jeremiah here is is promising um, kind of this a messianic promise, this promise of Israel fully living in the reality of this new covenant. We enjoy the realities of the new covenant in a, in a spiritual sense, but they are not totally. Um, you know, out in the world around us. We still live in a world that has fallen. And even us as believers, our hearts are not fully convinced to the reality of the new covenant. And so this, these verses here are really trying to remind us and trying to get us to think about this is the reality of your life. Enter into that reality. And primarily the way that we do that is by... Um, forming our hearts around the things, the realities of Christ. And so Paul talks about this, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, right? He talks about the the battle there of the renewing of your mind towards Christ and the reality of the gospel or being conformed, being formed by the world around you. So there's some element of formation that has to happen in your life and in my life to actually live in the reality of this new covenant that the writer here is telling us about. You know, when we started uh, Citizens, even when we started with the vision team, I just, I can remember a number of times where we were talking about this idea of renewal, about like our lives being formed by the reality of the gospel and seeing renewal happen in our own lives personally, and in the life of this new church and even in the community around us where renewal or, or even on a, a larger scale where revival could happen, where people could experience the true life in Christ and it would change their lives and it would change our community. And it got me thinking of Psalm 85, 6 that says this, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Isn't that like an amazing prayer? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? That's what the author wants them to, to step into here. That's why there's like, this is the, the culmination of a lot of work and explaining that he's been doing. And he's saying, this is what has happened with Jesus. I want you to like get this and hold on to this. And so for us even, you know, a, a moment of renewal, you know, I really feel like this can be a season, even in the midst of a lockdown. I know we've said this before, um, months ago already, thinking about the, the pandemic, we thought about this idea of renewal. Actually, it usually happens on the, the backside of difficulty, of struggle, of crisis, of change. And that's exactly the context that Hebrews is written to. And it's also the context that we are receiving this into. So how do we do formation? There's a lot of ways to be formed and have our hearts formed. Um, I'm just going to talk about two of them, okay? Um, and the, I'm actually drawing from um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, uh, Life Together. If you've never read Life Together, it's a great little book, super short. Um, but it is a writing a small book about the practices that Bonhoeffer uh, did with like 25 other um, pastors in Germany, kind of in this transition time of, of Nazism rising and uh, Bonhoeffer rejecting that reality and saying, we need to understand what does it mean 
to be the people of God. And so the first area that he talks about is actually this area of community, of doing it together, of not coming, you know, to a church or to other believers with these expectations of it has to be about me, it has to be about what I want, what do I need, coming with personal, you know, um, desires and choices. No, Bonhoeffer says what you need actually is the community of God of God's people that will help remind you of the reality of this new covenant, this, these better promises that we've been reading about. And he says this in, in his book, he says, we enter into that common life, not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness and by his promise. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I stand under the word of Christ? Bonhoeffer says this, if we're going to enter fully into the reality of what Jesus has done for us, and if we're going to enter into this, these better promises, he says, we're going to actually do that together in a community. In, in, among other people of faith that will remind us and will sharpen us. But he also says this. So the first one is community. The second thing he talks about is the word of God and prayer. So being, these things being central to the believer. And he, he talked about Lectio Continua. Maybe you've heard of Lectio Divine or all these, these different ones. He talked about Lectio Continua, which is a consecutive reading of the Bible. All right, and what he was literally talking about was daily readings of the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. So what he's saying is what we need as believers. And, and in his book, you'll see it talks about this being surrounded by prayer. So surrounded by prayer, we need a daily interaction with the word of God. And he was literally talking about reading multiple chapters of the Old Testament and the New Testament every day so that we become firstly in our lives, thinking about and reminded of the reality of what this new, these new and better promises are. He writes this, For Christians, the beginning of the day should not be burdened and oppressed with the besetting concerns of the day's work. Now you're talking here to a German, okay? He's, he's a German author writing to German people. And I mean, he probably had a, a larger audience than that in mind. But I mean, think about the, the work ethic, right, of the, of the German mind. And now he's saying, your mind should not be consumed firstly with the work and, and the cares and the, the realities of the world. He says, when you rise up, you should put into your mind the word of God. So the community of God and the word of God surrounded by prayer are things that will actually form our heart. These are not things that we do to gain favor with God or to impress others. They are meant to form us to the reality of this new covenant of our, of our hearts being changed because of the work of Christ. Colossians 6, 3 verse 16, I think, puts it well. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The the scriptures, the word of God, slowly getting into your heart is not something that you can speed up or rush. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes sitting and taking in these scriptures. So this 
formation of our heart is, is making the truth here that is plainly laid out a reality for us. And we're either going to be formed by the, the world around us, it's either conforming us, or the reality of this new covenant is actually going to shape our lives. And so we need each other as a community, and we need the Word of God. So how do all these things, how, are, how is chapter 8 even made possible? That may be obvious for you, but how is all this made possible? It's all made possible through the gospel. It's through the work of what Jesus has done for us. And the challenge of that is that the gospel can be offensive because, and, and maybe now more than ever, we feel like we want to earn it. We feel like we can't just like get this. We feel like we should do something. Tim Keller says this, he says, the gospel or, or the good news of what Jesus has done will always cause offense because it shows us having a need that we cannot meet. It shows us that we have a need that we cannot meet. That's what makes it so offensive because all of us, probably all of humanity feels a need to do our part to make right what's gone wrong or to make, to, to earn our way to, into God's presence. You know, this week, um, Liz and I were actually watching a documentary about the uh, one-child policy in China back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, even into modern day. And, you know, it was this, this policy that said, hey, we're getting too big as a nation. So for the good of the nation, every family, every couple can only have one child. And so, you know, this went out throughout all of China into all the villages and, and they had doctors and they had midwives who would work and would really um, put this policy into action. And so in this documentary, it kind of lays out um, how this happened and, and all the, the, the terrible things that went along with that, all the abortions and the sterilizations of people and all the just the traumatic uh, events that happened as a result of this policy. And the interviewer, the, the person who made the film, went around and interviewed different people. And one of the ladies that she interviewed was a midwife from one of these more smaller rural villages. And this uh, midwife was now involved in helping people actually get pregnant, right? So couples that were um, struggling with infertility, her job now is to help them and to see that they have children. And she had been involved in all kinds of deliveries and all kinds of things as, as the one who enacted this policy. And so at one point, the interviewer asks her, how many deliveries have you done? She's just curious, like over your decades of being involved in midwifery, how many deliveries have you done? And the woman said this, she said, I don't know, but I do know about but I do know I've done about 50 to 60,000 sterilizations and abortions. So she says, I don't know how many deliveries I've done. I have not kept count of that. But she says, I do know that I've done about 50 to 60,000 sterilizations and abortions. And she says, listen to this, I've counted them out of guilt. I've counted them out of guilt. So the work that she was doing now to help couples to have babies was not, you know, it wasn't what she was really thinking about. She was thinking about actually those that she had, um, the, the work, the, the policy that she had fulfilled for China and how that had been so devastating for her. And she says this now about the work that she was doing for these couples. She says, 
the work that she is doing now and the reason why she is putting that work into is to atone for her sins. Now, I don't know if that's just a convenient translation of the Chinese that she was speaking, but that word, she says, atoning, that, that is sacrificial language word, okay? That is temple language, that she is feeling the weight of, you know, the wrong that she has done in her life and somehow desires and longs to make up for it and make, make up for the wrong that is done and make, make somehow make justice for what she has actually been a part of. And this is what makes the, the gospel offensive. And this is where even the gospel, before it's good news, it's actually bad news. Because the gospel says, that woman, you, me, none of us can make up for the wrongs that we've done. We just cannot do it. There's not enough time and we're not good enough to do it. It's actually something that God has to do for us. And so the gospel is this. And the, the way that this is actually possible is that there's a great exchange that happened. It is that Jesus went in our place to become a sacrifice. Look back at chapter 7. We'll close with this. In chapter 7, verse 27, it says this. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus didn't just go in as a high priest, and he's not just seated at the right hand of the Father in the majesty on high. He's not just this, me, this mediator, a minister of this new covenant that we benefit just because he found a better sacrifice or he's able to like kill some sort of animal that is better than any others. No, it's because he was the sacrifice. He took our place. He was the one who willingly came near to us, took on flesh, lived, and ultimately died in your place and in my place. And that's what makes it good news. It makes it good news for us as believers. It also makes it good news for everybody around the world. For that woman in China, that is the good news that she needs to hear about. And so the calling for us today, and this, this message really comes down to two things. The calling is first, have you accepted that gospel message? Like, have you accepted that you can't earn your way you can't do enough good things. You can't be just a good enough Canadian or a good enough person to make things right with God. All we can do is put our trust and our hope in Jesus who has made the way for us. And secondly, if you are a believer, are you stepping into forming your heart to come in line with this new covenant reality? Primarily through the people of God and entering into um, deep intimate relationships and also through the practice, the regular practice of um, making the word of God dwell deeply in our lives through scripture and through reading. It's an invitation and a reminder for all of us again this Sunday.